We're in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. We're going to make our way through uh, the end of, of verse 26 this morning. Kingdom goodness. As we worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount here this summer, we've talked about kingdom culture, we've talked about kingdom life, and this morning I want us to think something about kingdom goodness. And in various cultures, in various places, you might have some cultures think some things are right, while other cultures think some things are wrong. Uh, in our culture in particular, uh, stealing is generally viewed as wrong. In other cultures, stealing is not necessarily viewed as wrong. In some cultures, for example, if you leave an item out, it is now fair game, and it's not viewed as stealing to take it. Uh, many households have this phrase, and if you don't, uh, you might give it a shot. Say, did you touch it? Yes. Is it yours? No. Then why'd you touch it? Sorry, i got to let it go. But in some cultures, if, you're not, if somebody isn't personally in possession of an item, it is therefore fair game. There's nothing wrong with taking it. In fact, there's some sense that to have taken it, you have shown some ingenuity. And so what's right in one culture is not necessarily right in another culture. And so what uh, we have to figure out is what is good, what is right. And what we're going to think about this morning is kingdom goodness. And here's what I want you to understand by the word goodness I'm using here. Sometimes we think of the word goodness, and we're thinking maybe someone who's got their act together and they never seem to do anything wrong. Or you think of goodness, and you think of something as wholesome and rich. And What the kingdom offers us in terms of goodness is this. Christ in His righteousness is good, and Jesus is going to make the case to us this morning, not only are His ways good and right, His ways are good and desirable. Kingdom goodness is saying this, Jesus is going to argue that his ways are right, but not only are they right, they are desirable. Uh, for example, you might say, well, it is good and right on a somewhat regular basis to visit the doctor. No offense to the physicians here this morning. It is not necessarily desirable. As one commentator said, it seems like their full-time job is to figure out what they can stick in you, <laughs> shot or whatever else. What Jesus is saying is that is not how righteousness in the kingdom is. He's saying, I want to show you what is good and right, and I want to show you that what is good and right is also that which is desirable. See, we think of righteousness differently, don't we? We think of that which is right, good, uh, pure morally acceptable. We think of righteousness, meaning doing the right thing, as at best dull. And at worst, it's costly. Well, to do the right thing, it might cost you time, it might cost you money, it might cost you relationships, it might cost you uh, being able to do things you enjoy. So we think of doing things right is at best dull and at worst costly. And those things which are good are those things which are desirable, and normally in us, uh, those things which are desirable are at best unhealthy, and at worst, they might be evil. Jesus explains us uh, to us something very different about his kingdom. He says, I want to tell you what's good and right, and I want you to understand that my good and right ways are actually desirable. 
kingdom goodness. Look at verses 17 and 18. I'm, great, I'm grateful that Todd read them. We're going to read them again. Verses 17 through 18, God's goodness. This is what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. God's goodness is expressed about himself in many ways through the law. God communicated to us, his people, many good things about himself. Not all the good things about himself, but a lot of good things about himself through the law. Say you're like Todd and you're anticipating your wedding. Congratulations, Todd. Right, Saturday? All right, for Todd. So you might ask your new spouse, you know, uh, what are your mornings like? I don't know, what do you do in the morning? And your spouse might reply, you know, listen, I like to get up, wake up slow with a cup of coffee. After I have a cup of coffee, I like to have a nice light breakfast, maybe a little bit of cereal, maybe an egg. And then after my breakfast, I like to go for a walk to get woke up and to get a little bit of exercise. And as a spouse, you say to them, okay, that's great. When exactly can I understand that that will change? I don't like coffee, I don't like exercise, and I don't like light breakfast. I like gravy with my gravy and bacon. I wish I was kidding. And what are you talking about? I just told you what I do as a way of communicating what I am like. And so now you're telling him, you, well, at some point you want what I do to change because you're hoping I will change. And this is how we approach the law. We hear what God requires and we say, well, when can I get out of that? And what we have to understand, we're not merely saying we don't like rules. We're saying in many ways, I don't like what you are like. How could you possibly put these kinds of expectations on people? When will this change? The good things that God calls people to do are an expression of who God is, and as long as God is God, those things will be true, and those things will be good. That's why Jesus say, until heaven and earth pass away, not one part of the law will pass away. Why? Because God is not going to change. God is who He is. God will never change, therefore the things, the good things that He calls people to do will never change. So when we hear what God is into, when we learn what he prescribes and calls people to live like in the Bible, we say, well, okay, I I agree that might be right, but it is not desirable. But see, God is different than us when he looks at the things that he has in his scripture. He says, the things I am giving to you, the callings I have put on your life, the things I command you to do, those things I command you to not do, not only are these things right, they are in fact good and desirable. For example, over here in Matthew chapter 23, you can turn there if you want or just follow along as I read it. Jesus said this to the crowds and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and They do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works that they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. I know many of you are convicted of it. Just as I'm reading that, you're like, oh man, you got me. What this is, is they would bind these things on their head and their body to indicate how much they love the Scripture. And they'd make their fringes long as a way of showing how religious they are. You say, what are you talking about? Well, this would be like a kid from Awana wearing his awards around all week long. Like the three people from Awana know what I'm talking about. That would be weird. And some of you are saying, what's wrong with that? See, so they're wearing their awards. They say, look how religious I am. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. So they do their good things, not from a heart of desire. They do good things because they want others to recognize that they're better than everybody else. And that is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, I'm calling you to do something right so you can be religious. I'm not asking you to do the right thing so that you can have a good reputation. I'm not asking you to do the right thing so that you can be better than other people. What he is arguing is the right thing to do is good for you and it is desirable for you. In fact, obedience without an understanding that God's ways are desirable leads to religious arrogance. To do God's things without wanting to grow in the desire to do God's things leads to religious arrogance. So to merely do the right thing just as a means of saying, well, this is what God is into. I'm going to check the box. It's only a matter of time before you're going to decide you're better than somebody else. To do God's things without understanding the desire He has for us to express His goodness will always lead to religious obligation and arrogance. And usually over time, we'll get so frustrated with doing God's things and other people are getting away without doing it, we'll start making sure they are all doing it too. Say, well, if I have to put up with these difficult rules, so are you. And we, out of our arrogance, seek to oblige others to do them. But Jesus is saying, no, God's ways are right. And God's ways are, in fact, desirable and good. We, should, we need to understand it this way, and hopefully in a minute or two we may be able to develop this further. God's purpose is for us to understand this. His ways, when He is calling us to avoid sin and do what is right, He is not merely calling us to avoid evil. When He's calling us to avoid the uh, sin in our life, He's not simply saying, don't be naughty. What He is saying is, I want you to go for the more desirable thing. So before you is a plate of broccoli and a chocolate fudge cake. This is not a difficult decision. And all he is saying is choose the chocolate fudge cake. And you say, well, well, his ways don't seem like chocolate fudge cake. His ways seem like broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts. The problem is here, we need to understand this. Think about this. When we look at God's ways and view them like broccoli, we have to understand the problem is not the food. The problem is our taste. Because God is saying, if your taste buds are properly tuned, you will see that my ways are the more desirable way. It is the way that is a, not merely a better way to live. It is the way to enter in the goodness of God and enjoy all the good things He has offered. 
question is, how do we do that? How do we get to a place where we're not merely just trying to be good or avoid the naughty things in life, but how do we get to the place where we desire in our hearts that which is good according to God and that which is not uh, evil? How do we desire good more than we desire uh, evil? Uh, let's look at, read verses 19 and 20. Jesus says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Gaining God's goodness, verses 19 and 20. Gaining God's goodness. What did the serpent say to Adam and Eve in the garden? This question he asked them. Did God really say? Remember that question? Did God really say? The tempter, what he tries to get us to be deceived by is he says this. Did God really mean what he said? Or is he just being spiteful, preventing you from enjoying this perfectly good fruit? Did God mean what he said? And secondly, since God said what he said, how could you consider him good? How could a good God keep you from wanting to do this thing that you want? How could a good God keep you from this fruit? And Adam and Eve, of course, were deceived by it. They said, of course, God didn't really mean what he said. And of course, obviously, if he was a good God, he wouldn't prevent me from having this. We have to understand that when God gave us uh, the ways that we ought to live, when he gives us uh, the manner in which we glorify him with our life, we have to understand he didn't give us these things while holding his nose. So as we're going to get to in a minute, we're going to talk about anger. He's going to tell us, don't be angry. And he didn't do this like, well, of course they ought to be angry, but what am I going to do if they're angry all the time? They're, okay, fine, I'll tell them not to be angry. He didn't, he didn't give us these things and sort of embarrassingly ask these things of us. He said, no, these are the ways in which I can see in your life an expression of the goodness of who I am. God gave us the ways in which we ought to live in Him as a way of expressing who He is and the righteous ways in which He has called us to. So how in the world are we supposed to live in God's ways? How in the world are we supposed to gain God's goodness? Here's the best way to do it. Live perfect. You're going to need that to do that from the moment you're conceived. You're going to need to live perfectly from the moment you're conceived till the moment you die. You're going to need to not only make sure you don't do anything naughty, you're also going to make sure you do everything God commands you to do. And there's a lot of things. It's like a pretty long list. Not only that, you're going to need to do everything God commands you to do, and you're going to do it, need to do it precisely when He wants you to do it. So none of this, 20 years later, having regret, no, I should have done that, so I'm going to do it now. He's like, no, the ship has sailed on that. I wanted that done last week. So who's in? So how do we gain God's goodness? Listen to what one religious person said, the Apostle Paul in Philippians. Though I myself have, might have reason for confidence in my ability to obey, if anyone thinks he has 
reason for confidence in their flesh to obey, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So what he is saying is, what I'm going to do is I'm going to count every good thing I've ever done as a loss and instead count myself good in Christ. How do we gain goodness? The way the Bible says we gain goodness is by not earning it, not by being good, but rather by being in Christ who is good, who is righteous. Paul said it this way also over in Galatians chapter 3. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so what he says is this, the law was our guardian. It watched over us until Christ. So what the law does is it comes to us and says some silly things. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit idolatry. Don't envy. I mean, just very simple things, right? Don't move your neighbor's boundary stone. Who did that this week? Don't muzzle your ox while he's treading out the grain. When you have mildew, burn down your house. It's in there. Google it. And what Paul is saying is, okay, the law tells us what we can and can't do. We can't be perfectly righteous. And so it informs us that we need another way in which to gain our goodness. And Paul says, this is how I'm going to gain my goodness. I am going to put on Christ as a garment who is righteous. So instead of earning righteousness on my own, I'm going to put on Christ who is righteous. And so therefore, in Christ, I am righteous. So do I then turn to the law and say it's bad? No, because in Christ, I have fulfilled the law. So it's good, isn't it? Christ says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't worship idols, don't envy. Well, now I'm in Christ, I can do all those things, right? Well, no, why would I want to do those things? In Christ, that we, I understand what he is like. He, he's not into those things. I have been made righteous that I might live righteous. How does this happen? Romans 3, 21. Romans 3, verse, beginning in verse 21. Again, we're reading a, a lot of scripture here this morning, and uh, we do that unapologetically. This is what Romans 3, 21 says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, that is, made known, apart from the law. Does the law make God's righteousness known? Yes. Does the law makes God's righteousness known? All these important standards that God put in place for His people, it makes us know, okay, God is a righteous God. But now He is saying another way of righteousness being made known has been revealed. It is, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness is made known through the law. 
And now another way that God's righteousness is made known is through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. His righteousness is made known in the work of Jesus Christ for those who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? Are you in the all? Okay, good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So how do we receive righteousness? We trust that what Jesus did on the cross pays for all of the sin I have done, and I am made righteous in Christ. How is that possible? Verse 25, God put forward Christ as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Anybody use the word propitiation this week in common language? Likely not. Here's what propitiation means. Propitiation means God in His justice had every reason to exert on us because of our disobedience His righteous and perfect anger. We had rebelled against Him, stolen from Him, harmed Him and His creation to the degree that sin could. I understand what I'm saying there. And God had every reason to exert His righteous anger on us, condemning us forever to be separated from Him. And what He did is He took all of that anger, which was right and good, not capricious and toddler-like. God did not pitch a fit in heaven. This is right and good and properly measured. He took all of that good, righteous, perfect anger and instead put that on Christ on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. What does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for many hours there was complete darkness. And in those moments, that right, perfect, good, measured anger was, instead of going on us, going on Christ on the cross. Christ is the one who received on his own body and his own soul, so to speak, the anger which was owed to us. And by his blood, which we receive by faith, God shows righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over our former sins. Verse 26 of Romans 3. It was to show his righteousness that at the present time he might be the one who is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When we sin as in Christ, does he say, oh, don't worry about it? He worries about every sin. And every sin is accounted for, but thankfully not on those in Christ. Where is it accounted for? On that cross. He is both just. He doesn't let anything go because he is perfectly just. He is also the justifier because all of our sins are atoned for in Christ. We gain righteousness by trusting that what Christ did on the cross pays for our sin and that what Christ did on the cross receives on himself the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus completed the law, fulfilled. That's why he said, I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. If Jesus came to abolish the law, what, what point would the cross have? No point. There's no law. He said, I have come to complete it, to bring it to fulfillment, everything that the law required. Lawbreakers are saved by the law fulfiller. Lawbreakers are saved by the law fulfiller. 
and God's good, right, and just anger is placed onto Christ, and God's good, right, and just forgiveness is placed onto us. How do we gain goodness? We believe. Okay, God, I hear what you're saying. I believe you. What you're saying is true. I am both a sinner and Jesus is a sacrifice. And in fact, I will rely on you and you alone to provide for me righteousness. We trust in Christ and Romans 8.1 says what? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the way in which we receive the goodness of Christ is through His sacrifice on the cross in which He received from God the anger which should have been expressed to us. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth away, not one dot of the law will pass away. Why? Because the cross is too important. The cross is not helpful for those who are not condemned. But when the law condemns, the cross is our only means of goodness and our only means of escape. So, you receive the goodness of Christ, you trust in Him, you rely on Him, then what happens? Well, now that I have received righteousness in Christ, certainly I can therefore do whatever I want. And this again is how we misunderstand the law. Christ has not provided us righteousness in order that we might have mere lenience, Christ has also not provided us righteousness that we might live in some strict adherence to a law code. Instead, Christ has provided us righteousness that we might finally have the opportunity to live in His goodness, God's perfect design and purpose for us to live in His good ways and His good purposes. Say, well, I'm saved. I don't have to worry about it. There's another way of saying that. Did God really say that Christians need to know their Bible? Did God really say that we ought to seek the Lord in prayer? Did God really say that we ought not to hold on to grudges? I mean, that seems a little legalistic. I mean, get over yourself. We're in Christ. What we misunderstand in that moment is that we think God's ways are just his ways of foisting upon us difficult religious scruples to keep us from going off the rails before we get to heaven. And what the Bible is teaching us is not that he's going to give us a strict life of religious obligation to get us to heaven. He's saying, my ways are the good ways. The good life is found in the good ways of God and what he has called us to. But we have to understand this. God's ways are not our ways. Now, I want to point this out in a couple of different ways in the Sermon on the Mount. There's actually six or seven different ways that Jesus wants to explain to us that God's ways are not His ways, and this morning we're going to talk about anger, so don't lose your temper on me. What we tend to think is, well, God's got rules, but His ways aren't the best way, and Jesus is going to explain. Number one, we don't understand what the law is actually saying, and we also misunderstand how it is good. So today we're going to Talk about anger, and then over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to cover many other topics that Jesus talks about. Did God really say, don't be angry and reconcile with those who have wronged you? Look at verses 21 through 26 
Matthew chapter 5. God's goodness in reconciliation. You have heard it said that those of these words of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with them to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. God's goodness in reconciliation. Jesus here interprets the law. The law says quite plainly, you shall not murder. Anybody disagree? Murder is bad. I just want to make sure we cover that in case we have anybody on the fence. Murder is bad. But he says, listen, you've misinterpreted the law. Murder is more than just don't kill somebody. We pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, I made it through the day and I haven't killed anybody. But man, I hate that guy. Listen, I didn't kill him, but if he were to die in some tragic on-the-job accident, I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. And Jesus is saying, you've, you've misunderstood Murder, listen, are you ready? Murder is the same as anger, he says. Murder is the same as insulting someone. Murder is the same as demeaning anyone. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I don't know how to read that different. You're trying right now. I know you are. Anyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. I'm trying, there's the one exception, the people with Raiders stickers on their cars. There's no exceptions. Murder is the same as anger. Murder is the same as insulting someone. Murder is the same as demeaning someone. God, God's ways are always good, and God's ways are always a matter of the heart. Always a matter of what's going on inside of us. Our anger is not like God's anger. Our anger says this, things, uh, that, uh, things are not the way they're supposed to be, and they're supposed to be a certain way, and it just so happens the way things are supposed to be are the way I want them. Our anger is always expressed mistakenly. The things that ought to make us very angry don't. And the things we ought to not worry about infuriate us. Jesus is saying to you, I have something very good for you in me. I have something very good for you in my righteousness. I have the best thing you could possibly want. A life of peace and a life of perfect justice in me. Who wants it? Who wants a life of peace and perfect justice? Any takers? And Jesus just simply says, what you need to do is then take all the things in your life that are not right and unfair and say, you know God, I'll let you have it. Romans 3. I lost the verse. Romans 3. Jesus takes, where is it here? Where's the propitiation verse? 
325? There we go. Thank you. Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So on the cross, everything that we did that made God angry went on to Jesus. Agree? You're not sure? Okay. How about the guy next to you? Everything he did that made God angry, where does that go? On the cross. So two people standing next to, to each other, looking at a cross where all of our sins were nailed, and I turn to my buddy and say, you're a jerk. Are, and he, are we looking at the same cross? That's precisely what Jesus is saying. Two people have had everything they've ever done wrong forgiven, and all of the anger for that, meaning nothing was just sort of brushed off. Everything that friend of mine should have received from me in anger was put onto Christ. So was his misdeeds against me paid for? Yes, it was. Was it fully and completely put onto Christ? Yes, it was. And I want to turn to him and call him a jerk. I want to turn to him and say how much he owes me. Jesus on the cross is saying, excuse me, I j- just one little thing. I paid for that for him. Jesus on the cross takes all of God's wrath on my behalf, and Jesus on the cross takes all of the wrath on behalf of my brother, on behalf of my sister. What standing do I have now to hold anger against someone? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 through 5. A couple of more verses that are important to remember. This is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to the light the hidden things, uh, and the darkness will be disclosed, the purposes of every person's heart. Each one will receive his commendation from God. Two options here. You can work really hard all of your life to finally expose the wrong that guy did to you. Or you can wait till the end of time for God to expose all of that person's heart. Which is better? Let God do it. So we have to understand what the Bible is not teaching us is just to let stuff roll off and get over it. What the Bible is teaching us is let God be the one to account for it. I don't need to be angry with you because one day you get to stand before God and he can handle his business. And you and him can have a conversation about that. I trust that God is not going to let this go. He is going to properly hold each of us to account. Of course, at the end of times, we're going to say, I'll take Jesus. Look at what Romans 12 says. Romans 12, 18 says this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Let me just read that again. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't take revenge. Why? Because let God do it. Turns out he's pretty handy. God is calling us into the good life of having a life where we can let go of all this anger and uh, angst against others because we can rest that God is going to properly account for all things. And you might say, I'm, some of you are thinking, well, there's righteous anger, isn't there? There's a time when we should get really upset because God's ways are being compromised. And that's referred to in Ephesians 4.25, so let's just read it real quick because some of you are justifying yourselves. I'm not going to name names. You know who you are. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Why does he say be, say, be angry and do not sin? Because generally you do. Okay, count the number of times on one hand, because it's all you'll need, that you got angry and you didn't sin. If you've got one finger up, you've counted too high. He is saying be angry and do not sin, because that's what we do. He follows this up. In fact, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Here's how anger in a Christian ought to work in the power of the Spirit. Oh, man, that upsets me. Oh, I'm over it. You say, that's not realistic. If your Christian life can be lived without the power of the Spirit, you're not living the Christian life. That's just fancy religion. You say, well, that's not realistic. That's not reasonable. Well, God didn't call us to live a reasonable life. He raised God from the dead. He doesn't do reasonable. He does crazy, miraculous. Be angry, get over it. Well, what if they really wronged me? They really did. Look at the cross. Is it handled? Yeah, it's handled. It wasn't brushed off. It was paid for. Be angry. Do not sin. Do not give an opportunity to the devil. Some of us think that the biggest way we give the devil opportunity is go to a movie we shouldn't go to, drink something we shouldn't drink, smoke something we shouldn't smoke, talk to people we shouldn't talk to. How does he say we give an opportunity to the devil? By being angry and sinning or holding on to our anger longer than the sun is in the sky. Let me reinterpret that verse for you. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. We can say it this way. The sun's going down somewhere. It's time to get over it. And I, some of you religious people, but it's, going, it's still up somewhere too. It's not right. Not my first rodeo. Be angry and don't sin. He may as well have told us to swim and not get wet. Forgive. Look at the cross. Understand it's been paid for. Understand he knows exactly how bad you were harmed, exactly how bad you were hurt, and Jesus took it all, so it wasn't brushed off by God. He knows precisely how horrible it was. But don't give the devil an opportunity by holding on to it. Finally, and we'll conclude in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. The Bible says this, the eye, not, eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. How does a head get around without feet? It's hard. Correct answer is rolling. It's inappropriate. Um, 
Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow great honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are uh, more presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed the body, he's talking about the body of Christ, the church, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Anger or unreconciliation in the body of Christ says to other believers, I don't need you. For you to think you don't need other believers is heresy. The Bible says you can't make it in the Christian life without other, unbel- without other believers And to maintain your anger or unreconciliation with other believers is to basically say, I don't need you, and the Bible says you're wrong. Not so much about your anger. There might be a perfectly good explanation for your anger. What you ought to do is let God be angry for you. You be reconciled as a recognition that God's word is true. The old adage is true. Anger and being unreconciled is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. You need them. I know that drives you nuts. But the Bible wants us to rest in God who will account for all deeds. Do you need Christ? Do you need Christ? Then you need his body. That's it. End of story. This modern-day notion of sort of the body of Christ is convenient when I'm into it is not biblical. I'm going to leave it at that, simmer down. But if you say, I need Christ to enjoy the glories of heaven, the Bible is just as clear you need the body of Christ to endure till you get there. And to maintain anger or unreconciliation to anyone else in the body of Christ misunderstands the work of Christ and misunderstands the goodness of God in reconciliation. You want the good life in the kingdom of God? You want kingdom of goodness? In the area of anger and reconciliation, trust that God knows what happened. Trust that God is going to properly account for everything we've received. We don't have to live a life of anger and bitterness and discord. Jesus is asking us to get off our religious high horse and convince ourselves, well, I haven't killed anybody, and instead put as high a premium on being united as the body of Christ. He is saying to do it quickly, that we might enjoy quickly the benefits of God's people, and that we might give as little as possible the opportunities of the devil to cause discord in our own hearts and in the body of Christ. Now, I feel the need just to add an addendum. I know we don't have time for it. Just a quick addendum. And it's unscripted. It always gets me in trouble. You're welcome. To forgive and reconcile does not mean you're best buddies, especially in areas of significant abuse. You can say, God, forgive them. God's wrath on them. May God account to them what they have done. I don't have to hang out. If anybody says, hey, we got to hang out, we got to be cool because you got to forgive me, you can say, by God's grace, take a hike. That's just understand, that's good boundaries. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? That's really, really important. We're not saying we got to get walked over, 
But we are going to say, why in the world am I going to hang on to this anger in my own heart? I'm going to let God handle their business. It doesn't mean you've got to be best friends with everybody. It turns out there's some people you don't get along with very well, right? I know. I've gotten emails. <laughs> That's not the end of the world. The fact that you and another person are not on the same wavelength does not mean you've got to try and figure out how to be best pals. But it does mean you need to let go in your heart the angst and anger and bitterness you might hold. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Gain God's goodness in Christ. Live in God's goodness by not looking at his law as religious obligations, but rather that's the good life. His ways and his purposes.